Past Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPielli.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f***ing Put that in. I don't... So the Tribe drops its third straight on this trip, 6-1 to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Talk about the past, talk about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I would know, but I would say the reason why they want that is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball and from the baseball angle. I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this, he sucks. Well, the is out. out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon it back. I'm not here to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business Ever put out in the Welcome aboard live from the CSP studios at Hasbrook Heights, New Jersey, and the MTR Radio Network. This is the Past Ball Show. And obviously, those who have followed me know that I'm the king of technical difficulties, but it took a little while to get started today. Glad to be aboard with you and kind of enjoying the fact that today we're going we're gonna to be live on the show from 10 to 12. Of course, those of you who listen to the show that are part of the program know that we keep the whole thing interactive. So tweet at me at John underscore Pielli to keep everything going on the way that you know we, we always do. Um, in a couple minutes, I'll open up the phone lines, give you guys the opportunity if you want to call in. We haven't gotten a chance to do that in a while. Of course, the format of the past ball show has been set up to where you know I previously record the show during the week, and then I air it Saturday mornings from 10 to 12. So obviously on the replays, if it's not 10 to 12 in the morning, you know that it's a replay just like normal. So tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. Ton of different things that I want to get into today. And you know we could talk a little bit about the stuff that's going on. Free agency has been a little bit quiet. Um, you know, postseason awards are already done. Uh, we can talk about some outlooks about what we think or what the pace is for teams like the New York Yankees, the New York Mets, and the Philadelphia Phillies. All the, obviously the local teams. You know, as we look to try to uh, see what the what's going to bring for the next season and what you know we're going to get ready to see in regards to um, what what kind of product you're going to see on the field. Um, I do want to get into, obviously, Bases Empty blog, JohnPLA.com, the whole thing. Uh, I've been doing a lot of writing this week. I've touched on a lot of different things. But, uh, you know, a very important thing to start out with is the Baseball Hall of Fame. Um, uh, not a surprise in regards to the ballot that was released that was sent out to, uh, you know, show 
what players are going to be available for the first time on this year's ballot. We know that you know last year was the first year since 1996 that the Baseball Writers Association of America did not select a player to be in, enshrined in the Baseball's Hall of Fame. And obviously a lot of that had to do with what may have been a protest from the Baseball's Writers Association of America's standpoint, uh, possibly a situation where the writers said, listen, we're going to show our protest to what's going on in a steroid era and our dispute with the steroid era is going to you know, be you know, shown within our vote. And, you know, looking at it this way, I think it's kind of half and half because there there were certainly players on the ballot that weren't implicated or involved in the steroid era or even in some cases did not play in a quote unquote steroid era. And those players were also left off in regards to choices by the writers, you know, in regards to players that should have been in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I think it was, you know, what I say it's a combination of both. I say it because, yes, there was obviously a protest of the, the, the potential Hall of Fame players that were playing in the era of steroids. They either used they were either implicated or there was just a protest from the whole generation and obviously included guys like Barry Bonds, like Roger Clemens, uh, Rafael Palmaro, Mark McGuire, Sammy Sosa, and then other players that were on the ballot at that time, like Jeff Bagwell and Mike Piazza. And, you know, obviously players like that, that there was a little bit of suspicion or at least one person out there said that because they played in that era, they had to be using steroids. And that's, you know, obviously something that we dealt with last year and we talked to ad nauseum in regards to those players. And I've said all along, and a lot of people don't agree with this point of view, which is fine. I mean, obviously I've had debates, disputes, you know, for, you know, a long time about this. But the eras of, you know, 1990 to 2005, if you want to call it, if you want to call that the time frame of the steroid era and the way things were set up that way, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the players that played in that time and a good amount of them. And I think this is another thing that's disputed because we don't know exactly how many of the players was it 100 percent? Was it 75 percent? Like some people have said, was it 10 to 20 percent or a quarter or a half? Nobody really knows exactly how long or how many of these players were doing steroids during that time. And obviously the era from, like I said, 1990 to 2005 is always going to be looked at as the steroid era. And players that played the prime of their career, if not their entire career, between that time frame are obviously going to be penalized because of the suspicion of steroids, whether they used or not. And as baseball goes forward, this era will be looked back as just a time frame in baseball history. I mean, you had the dead ball era, you had pre-integration, you had post-integration, you had expansion, you had the year of the pitcher, you know, you had, uh, you know, uh, live ball eras first and second and dead ball eras in regards to hitting during certain times of Major League Baseball history. And we've said all along, and one thing that the people that are against steroids, the people that are against the generation and want these players barred and kept from having the opportunity to be part of baseball's Hall of Fame, what they'll agree with me is, is that you know, there were players in different generations that were penalized because of the era that they played in. 
Now, you know, you look at the, you know, the, 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 the dead ball era before, you know, 1920, before Babe Ruth came out there, started hitting home runs and, you know, changed the game of baseball to the way that it became afterwards. You know, there were plenty of good hitters that hit before 1920. And Major League Baseball, you know, has taken the time to honor the best players of each generation. And players that may not have gone out there and hit ridiculous amount of home runs have been rewarded with the opportunity to be part of baseball's Hall of Fame, you know, because of the time that they played in. And obviously, once the home runs started coming out there, and a guy who you know may have been a Hall of Fame player in the nineteen, you know, early nineteen hundreds or the nineteen teens, uh, you know, ends up not having the opportunity to be a Hall of Famer because guys like Babe Ruth, guys like Rogers Hornsby, Lou Gehrig, you know, that whole generation going forward are all of a sudden hitting a whole bunch of home runs, and you know, a player to happen to play in that time, but may have a style that would have been better suited for the, the pre-live ball era ends up you know getting penalized because they happen to play at a time where all of a sudden all these guys are going out there hitting home runs. And that's the same thing that's said going forward. I mean, you talk about it. I've had the opportunity to talk to you know players and people that know a lot about the Negro Leagues and the Negro League history. But you know, you look at the Negro Leagues who you know were playing kind of on a parallel level or trying to uh, be what Major League Baseball was, and obviously because the players weren't weren't integrated, because you know the same players weren't playing against each other, some of them may not get their due justice. And you know, as you go forward, and you got you know integration where you got players that may have done better or may you know their numbers would have seemed better before integration end up getting penalized as the years go on and the point that i'm getting to is when we talk about the steroid era in major league baseball right now we're right in it we're prime in it baseball has done everything they can and i do agree that they've done a lot better job in regards to getting their you know, you know the drug testing policy in place and kind of standing for what it is that they really want to do and that's to keep performance enhancing drugs out of the game now we're we're still in it and obviously it's the talk of a lot of radio shows it's the talk of a lot of discussions in regards to major league baseball because we're still living it and it's hard to say that the players that played in this era whether they did steroids or were accused of doing steroids are going to get their due they're, they're just as due right now. But give it another 20 years, give it another 40 years, give it another 60 years. Major League Baseball is not going anywhere anytime soon. And you know, saying that, I am confident and I feel confident saying that the players that were the best of this era will absolutely be enshrined someday in baseball's Hall of Fame. And it may not be within the 15 years that they have the opportunity to be uh, put in. Some players, because of you know their gaudy numbers, will be penalized and may not get the five percent that they deserve to get in regards to um, you know getting their due justice and being part of baseball's Hall of Fame. Might not even be on the ballot for you know more than a year or two at a time once they become eligible. But the bottom line is these players, the Barry Bonds, the Roger Clemens. You know, and, 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 you know, a guy like A-Rod is a very difficult situation because of everything that he has done to kind of fight the system that's trying to right itself. And, uh, you know, I don't want to get into a discussion about A-Rod. I mean, you want to you want to call in once I give the number out. I'm sure I'll give my two cents on how I feel about it. But I'm just tired of talking about that. But in regards to, you know, the players that have retired, the players that played in that era, the players that either did steroids or were accused of doing steroids, 
steroids or are implicated maybe by somebody who thinks that they did steroids are not going to get the opportunity to be part of baseball's Hall of Fame right now. And I think it, we have to accept that. We have to understand that. And a lot of baseball's writers are going to do what they can to block and maybe keep guys like this from having the opportunity to be part of baseball's Hall of Fame. And eventually it's going to set itself up to where it, it, it'll, it, it'll work itself out. Like I said, maybe 20 years, maybe 40 years. These players will get their due justice. But in regards to right now, in regards to what's going on in baseball now, obviously the ballot was released with the new first-time eligible players. And you know, I think we knew this coming in based on you know five years after retirement and what players would be available. We know that Greg Maddox is going to be on a ballot. We know that Tom Glavin's going to be on a ballot. We know that Frank Thomas is going to be on a ballot. And we know those are probably the three strongest candidates for baseball's Hall of Fame that are on the ballot right now, you know, for this coming season for the first time. And we know about the players that were on there before. You got the, the new players that I just mentioned. You got the players that were first time eligible last year, like Bonds and Clemens and Mike Piazza and Craig Biggio and the players that were there before. Jeff Bagwell is on his third year on the ballot this year. And you got, of course, the longtime guys, the guys that are getting towards the end of their eligibility in regards to baseball's Hall of Fame. Jack Morris, obviously, a lot of talk about Jack Morris. He's a guy that, you know, there's a very good debate, a very interesting debate in regards to whether Jack Morris is a baseball Hall of Famer. I mean, Jack Morris had an outstanding career. He put up some very good numbers. It was an outstanding postseason pitcher. But, you know, you put up his numbers against the best to ever pitch in the game. And some say that maybe he falls a little bit short. And, you know, it's a shame the guy is a very good pitcher. I think you could compare Jack Morris and what he did. And you want to say a player that's in the Hall of Fame that kind of can make a comparison to. You say maybe Burt Blylevin. Blylevin didn't get 300 wins. He had a slightly better than 500 record. It wasn't a dominant record. He never was the best pitcher in Major League Baseball. But over time, he eventually got in. And I think a lot of baseball writers are gravitating towards this. They're debating because you look at the you know the percentage of votes that Jack Morris has gotten over the last several seasons, and you obviously see it growing as it gets closer to what now is his 15th and final season of eligibility for baseball's Hall of Fame. And looking at it like that, you gotta you gotta say, all right, the writers probably you know a certain writer or two is thinking, hey, I don't want to be the guy that leaves him out. I don't want to be responsible for Jack Morris not getting into the Hall of Fame. If I think he's close enough, I think I'm going to give him the opportunity to be, you know, get the vote and get himself in. And it's getting to the point where, you know, if he pushes 70% or gets closer to the 75% of the vote that's required to get into baseball's Hall of Fame, you obviously have to start uh, wondering if he's that close, he's probably going to get in. I'm going to give my own opinion, and I think Jack Morris was a phenomenal pitcher. Obviously, the 84 Tigers led them to a World Series. You know about the Twins in 91, the 10-inning game against John Smoltz uh, in Game uh, 6 of the, the World Series where you know they ended up, you know, ended up winning 1-0 by throwing the 10 shutout innings. You know The whole thing obviously won a World Series with the Blue Jays a year later, though he wasn't the same pitcher. But Jack Morris, as great of a pitcher as he was, and he was very good. And honestly, if you look through the 80s, he might have been 
the most dominant pitcher through the entire decade of the 80s. I mean, you talk about Clemens, you talk about Doc Gooden. They didn't really start until around, you know, the to the decade was well underway. Jack Morris pitched the entire decade, and you got to make a case that maybe he was the best and most dominant pitcher in that decade. And I think that does hold some water. But I think when it comes down to it, I, I feel he falls a little short. I really do. And, and honestly, if Jack Morris gets inducted in a baseball Hall of Fame, I'm not going to throw a hissy fit. I'm not going to flip out. I'm not going to go nuts. I'm not going to scream and you know say, what's this guy doing in there? Because I understand that baseball over time has become a little bit watered down. If you look at some of the players that got into there, you know, you know about the magic numbers, the 300 wins, the 3,000 hits being automatic kind of inductions, and you're going to see, uh, you know, as time goes by, you wonder about a guy like Craig Biggio, who I'll talk about in a little bit, uh, you know, was a Hall of Fame player. He got 3,000 hits. It's an automatic number. Why? Why does he or doesn't he get in the Hall of Fame? And Jack Morris didn't get the 300 wins. I don't think that's the sole reason why I would hold him out, but. You know, that being said, I do think it's something very interesting to say, hey, what's the difference between a very, very good pitcher, a dominant pitcher, maybe one of the best pitchers, uh, you know, in the recent 20, 30 years and the mark off or the cutoff for baseball's Hall of Fame? And I think that's something that really has to be thought about because, you know, you do want the Hall of Fame to honor the best players to ever play in a game. And you have to compare sometimes different eras to different pitchers. And, you know, you talk about guys that go out there and dominate and are able to pitch, you know, excessively well for years. But do they match up with the best of all time? And baseball's Hall of Fame is supposed to be set up for the best to ever play the game. And, you know, you got to wonder, and I wonder, and this is why I hold Jack Morris out, nothing against anything he ever did in his career. One of the better postseason pitchers in the last 50 years, absolutely. Two-time World Series champion, do the Tigers in 84 win the World Series or do the, the Twins in 91 win the World Series without him? Absolutely not. I get it. But when you're putting a standard, a setup of what you think baseball's Hall of Fame is and should be, the best players to ever play the game is Jack Morris, that type of player. And I think, you know, I, and, and listen, I'm not going to ever criticize anybody that gets inducted, whether it's by the Baseball's Writers Association of America or later on by the Veterans Committee. Because, you know what, it's a bunch of people getting together to nominate what they think are the best players to play in this game. And it's always up for debate. We could always talk about the Andre Dawson's, the Gary Carter's, the Jim Rice's, the Burt Blylevin's, even the Don Sutton's and the Phil Negro's and put those individual players one at a time against the greatest to ever play in this game. And I think that's something that really needs to be talked about. It needs to be thought about, and it needs to be used when we're determining what players are going to end up being part of baseball's Hall of Fame. And sometimes, you know what, sometimes the players end up, you know, you get a player or two that may not have been, you know, one of the best of all time, and I understand that. But when you're talking about, you know, the general ballot, you know, the last opportunity for Jack Morris to be part of baseball's Hall of Fame, you know, Dale Murphy had that opportunity last year. And you can make a case that Dale Murphy was one of the best players in all of Major League Baseball 
for a four, five, six year period, a two-time MVP, put up phenomenal numbers. And the one thing that holds him back and held him back and kept him from being part of baseball's Hall of Fame was the fact that he didn't dominate long enough. You could say the same thing about Don Mattingly, who's on the ballot again this year and will, will continue to be for the next couple of years. You know, he Don Mattingly was probably the best hitter in the entire American League for a four or five year period and maybe one of the top players in all of Major League Baseball. But he didn't do it long enough, the unfortunate injury, and he wasn't the same after that. And that may hold Don Mattingly back, and it looks like in regards to the Baseball Writers Association of America, will probably hold him back the same way that Dale Murphy ends up not getting inducted in his 15 years of eligibility. I think Jack Morris is in that same type of group. I really do. When you look at some of the best pitchers and think of the dominant pitchers, you know, that pitched at the same time as Jack Morris. You think of, you know, the guys that are in a Hall of Fame, you know, a Seaver who had pitched, you know, at the same time. You look at other guys that are in a Hall of Fame, Nolan Ryan, you look at, you know, Clemens, Doc Gooden. I know Doc Gooden's not a Hall of Famer. He's pretty much similar to uh, a Mattingly or a, a Murphy because he just didn't do it long enough. But, you know, was Jack Morris up with those guys and you put them up against other Hall of Famers that pitched either while he pitched maybe before early on or later on you know does does it hold enough water that Jack Morris should be part of baseball's Hall of Fame and I think it's something that has to be looked at I think it's something very serious that you know ends up you know looking at you know you got to look at it like this because you know there's no certainty over whether Jack Morris is a Hall of Famer and I think, listen, I think he's a phenomenal pitcher. I think he may, over time with the Veterans Committee, have the opportunity to be part of it. I'm sure it may happen while he's still alive. But I think this year, you have to hold Jack Morris back just a little bit and say, is he up there with the best pitchers to ever pitch in Major League Baseball history? And that's, that's where I have a little bit of an issue. I just don't think that he, he does it. I don't think he's been that dominant or the, the best, you know, of that time. And I would hold him off. But once again, John Pialli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our first break of the program here. And we'll be back with a little more stuff going on. I'm going to touch a little bit about the Hall of Fame. I want to talk a little bit about some stuff going on in regards to, you know, free agency, where the team's set up. And obviously, I got some very good interviews coming up. So be back with a lot more stuff going on after this restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. Hi, this is Kevin. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. A ton of different things going on I want to get into, and we're going to talk 
you know, as I try to get ready, I do have three interviews that I plan on uh, showing and, you know, displaying and airing on this show. And I do want to take a couple minutes to try to get to it. But in, in the meantime, I want to uh, touch on a couple things going on in regards to baseball right now. And obviously we know that, you know, free agency has started. It's not necessarily the time where, you know, all the players are coming off the board. And I tell you, it's something that's, you know, really interesting to look at because, you know, in regards to this stuff, I think it's uh, something that has to be looked at because, you know, I think some team, some, some uh, fans of teams are panicking a little bit. And I think, uh, you know, it's way too early in a process to, um, you know, to end up doing this because, you know, the whole offseason is ahead of you. And I know I understand that there's a lot of, uh, you know, Mets fans out there, you know, they're a little bit frustrated about the stuff that's going on, you know, in regards to what the team has done and what the team is doing. But, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the the, uh, the winter meetings start in December. There's going to be a lot more stuff going on. I think you're going to wait for a couple big players to come off the board, maybe a Cano, maybe a Ellsbury or a Chu, and then you'll have a better understanding of the stuff that's going on. But the only thing I just want to say is I just think that it gets to a point where it gets a little exaggerated to the point where people will kind of overdo it and panic a little bit. But I'm going to touch on that in a little bit. But right now, I'm going to play an interview that I recorded with uh, former Major League Alfie or Herm Winningham and Herm started his career in the New York Mets organization was traded after the 98-84 season in the deal that brought Gary Carter to the New York Mets along with Floyd Yeomans and Hubie Brooks and Mike Fitzgerald and yeah there's somebody else I'm missing there but we'll touch on it during the interview hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with former Major League outfielder Herm Winningham who also won a World Series title with the Cincinnati Reds in 1990. Herm Winningham, Herm what's going on man? Hey, good deal, man. Of course, Herm, you had a chance to play in the major leagues for several seasons as an outfielder. Um, you were originally drafted in uh, 1981 with the New York Mets in the first round, but in the two prior drafts, you were also taken with the, in the first round and chose not to sign. Tell us a little bit about that. I had a feeling this probably has something to do with slot money or whatever the equivalent was in that time. But, you know, tell us a little bit. That's nothing to do with money. That's nothing to do with money. But I left my school, right? Uh, I was drafted in the first round. We had two drafts. We had uh, January 2nd and January 2nd draft. Uh, and the June draft, I mean, January draft was mainly for junior college players at that particular time. So, you know, I said, well, I want to go to baseball school, but I wasn't ready for a four-year institution because my grades weren't where they're supposed to be. And also, I thought well, I could still get drafted while I'm playing in the junior college, you know, at a J, uh, JUCO. So, uh, but it had nothing to do with money. Uh, it had to do with I wanted to get away from home and see what it was like, you know, being on my own. And besides, I made a promise to my mom that he finished the year school and I did that. Wow, that makes perfect sense, man. And, you know, of course, you know, you end up three consecutive drafts being taken in the first round. So, you know, I'm sure you, over time, realized that your ability was still there and you were still going to get an opportunity at some point. Exactly. Um, I, you know, everybody says, well, they'll take the money in the run or whatever. But, I, you know, the biggest thing was I wanted 
an education. I wanted some part of, of an education. It's not the whole whole degree. I got an associate's where I know if, if, it, if my dream doesn't come through playing in Major League, I still have something to fall back on. I, I made that promise my mom. And, um, and that's why I, it took me so long to be, uh, you know, to find yeah, I tell you, it ends up being, you know, a wise decision because you never know. I mean, you got a, you know, you got a little injury or something, you know, you could be the best player in the world, but, you know, people get hurt and stuff like that. So. They get hurt, or, or maybe my talent level pops out, you know, and I wasn't there, you know. And, you know, and, and that's what, what, what it's all about because, remember, now, if, if you're coming from, you're a big fish on a small pond, where are you coming from? But if you look at everybody that's being drafted, and then all of a sudden, all of those big fish are coming together in one, one big talk. Now you aren't so big anymore. You know, so your talent level has to keep up with the talent level that's coming in also. Yeah, no question. And I tell you, you know, you end up going through the, you know, the Mets system, you know, up until the age 22 season, and then afterwards, after the 84 season, you end up being traded in the Gary Carter deal. Um, I mean, I'm sure, you know, that's something that, you know, probably surprised you a little bit. But, you know, at the end, you know, the Expos end up getting about, you know, four solid players that end up coming up to the major leagues. Tell us a little bit about being traded and then your first experience going from the Mets organization to Montreal. Well, I was hurt when I got drafted. Oh, I mean, I traded. Oh, man, I, man, it was, it, I was dealing with because uh, there's Joe Max and, and uh and uh, Gorman and all these guys took a chance on all of those touches going and, uh, and I gave him everything I had, you know, because he always would, you know, would talk all the time. Uh, and, uh, and I promised him, I gave you everything I have every day, and, uh, I, and I did my, you know, I thought I did my part of the bargain. But I know it's, at that time, you know, you don't know what this game's all about. on you, they drafted you, you go all the way through their farm system, so, you know, you feel like, you know, you, you touch the ground in the major leagues in 1984, maybe within your mind you say, hey, you know, I didn't get to fulfill what I thought I was going to once I signed with this team. Well, I thought I was going to be a mess, but, you know, you know that's how naive I was, you know, but, I, you know, I had that, the interest in my mind, you know, that, that I found out Yeah, now, now you, 
And now you go from, you know, the Mets organization, which was obviously on a rise, but to a Montreal Expos organization that had been known for having a lot of success. Of course, you know, Carter was there for a long time. You know, Andre Dawson was there for a long time. You know, you have a lot of very good players. And you kind of go there with a group of young players. You, Hubie Brooks, Mike Fitzgerald, Floyd Yeomans. You guys all come to this team together. I'm sure. I'm sure that must have made you feel a little more comfortable going to a new place. You know, I was just happy to be the big league, okay? Uh, because all I wanted to do was play in the major league. One day, you know, just just if, if it's just one game, I, you know, I fulfill that dream. I'm gonna take each day one day at a time. But I get traded. I said, now, okay. Um, I go, you know, spring training with with lots of all and. Thank you. 
Um, uh, it's going to be future Hall of Famers, all, all, all Hall of Famers now. You know, strong. Austin, I mean, you know, Dawson, um, Reigns, Davis, Eric, um, all the needle. I mean, the outfielders. You know, and uh, it, 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 it's just it's a thrill that I can say, hey, I play with these guys. Not against them, I play with these guys. Well, that, that's a blessing right there. Yeah, no question. I'm John Fiala here with Herm Winningham. And, you know, you, you mentioned the trade to the Cincinnati Reds, and, you know, you end up being part of that team. And, you know, the 1990 season comes. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of people didn't expect the Reds to be as good of a team as it was. But looking back and thinking about the players that were there, like you mentioned, you know, Paul O'Neill, you know, Barry Larkin, guys like that, you know, you know that, that was a good team. And just people just weren't really well, thinking about it coming into this season. Well, here's the thing. That team was originally, originally, Pete Rose's team. There was only one acquisition, one um, and, um, Al Morris. That was it. No, and then everything else was homegrown, basically, to that way. And with the trade here and there, you know. And, uh, and that was it. And, uh, it's like I said, it was Pete's team. You know, and then Luke came in, and the one thing he did is that, I think Pete did, uh, I, you know, he told us what, what our roles. You know, you knew you had nine guys that want to play every day, basically. But Luke gave us, uh, and, you know, kind of assured us. All right, this is your role, this is your role, this is your role, this is your role, this is your role. Oh, okay, now. You know, somebody tells you this is what, what, what you're going to do, and you should, you know, hey, you can prepare, you can prepare yourself. And that's what we do. Those guys on the bench. Those guys are like myself. And we were able to waiting for our season. Every time those guys needed a, needed a break, we, we step right in. You got to lost something somewhere because you gained something somewhere else. Yeah, and I'll tell you, what really, you know, stands out and probably part of the reason that, you know, the baseball quote-unquote experts were kind of down on the Reds coming into 1990 had a lot to do with what had happened a year before with Pete Rose and the subsequent suspension and everything that was involved with that. Like, all the turmoil and all that, but Lou put that aside. Lou dropped that right out of the box and they You know, he just ate Let's play baseball. Let's go. That has nothing to do with us. And uh, he kind of kept the press off on us about, well, did you know about pizza? Uh, we didn't really ask us answer those questions because we, could, we didn't know the answers to them. I didn't know. Well, I didn't. You know, so. Uh, and we went on, you know. And, and, and then when, when the season started, we ran off 19th Street or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so. And it was off and on. Yeah, and I tell you, you know, you had some very good leadership on that team. You know, a lot of, a lot of veterans were kind of in the right place at the right time. And like you mentioned, a lot of the guys had played together for, you know, a couple years beforehand. And you bring in, you know, a strong, you know, a veteran guy, a leader like a Luke Pinella, a guy who kind of in his own way is a no-nonsense type of guy, turned out to really be the best combination. Exactly. I mean, you know, hey, Luke was fighting. He was right there, Jump all over you and down the other side, you know, that kind of thing. And, but you got to bark back at Luke. You know, you, hey, you got to stand up. Hey, Luke, hold up now. You know, 
you know what was expected of you. And the only reason he jumped on you is because you wasn't doing what you were supposed to do. Or whatever. That kind of thing. So, I mean, this was fine. Um, you know, you just do your thing. And that's what we did, you know. And, and uh, oh, I forgot another great one I played against, Kilbert the Senior. I forgot about him. Um, then he comes since Jill, you know. Uh, so, there were a lot of guys. Uh, you know, but and and they just ha- you know just happened to jail at that right time, and we knew we had a chance because we had guys on the bench, guys that played, kept you in the game, we policed ourselves, we made sure you know we we did things together on our offense. That's how close we were. You know, I've been on the team where the first thing you know, the team get you and people go out of the door. You know. Um, but this team, man, we were scared to come out. We throw a lot of home. We were scared to out after we gave home. You know, a lot of times. And then the whole thing, we had somebody's house. Uh, on Sunday afternoon game, this is more special or something. The line, we would get together and, and then kind of pop up. You know, hey, Joe, where's your house tonight? You know, and, oh, okay. <laughs> he didn't even know anything about it. We all ended up over there or something. So uh, the camaraderie was, was was great. And, that's, and that was what the support was really good about it. And once again, John Fiala here with Herm Whittingham. Now, of course, that 1990 team, you know, you, you end up winning 91 games that year. You get to the postseason, and all of a sudden, the, the experts that were down on you were kind of thinking that this really was a team that could do it. You remember the Pittsburgh Pirates, who had won the National League East that season, had a very good team themselves, but people looked at them as being maybe, you know, a little too young, maybe a little bit inexperienced. And the Reds come in, the Reds come in there with, like you mentioned before, you know, guys Guys that have played for a while, guys who have been proven leaders and been around for you know for a number of years. So all of a sudden the tables kind of turn. You guys become the favorites there, and then you end up winning the uh, NLCS in six games. Right, exactly. And I tell you what, um, and I'm not saying this because we won four straight, you know, with Oakland. I'm saying this because uh, probably as long as before we started the NLCS. These are the hardest games you've ever gone through in your life. And Doug Law, you were right. He was right. I mean, every pitch you was holding your breath. Every hit, every batted ball foul, ball swing. You know, it was, he was really exhausted and you didn't even play. You know, and, but you couldn't wait to come back. You couldn't sleep because you want to do it again. You know, you want to come back and do it again. And, um, but I tell you what, it, I, I wouldn't, it, and, I, and I, I take something from Pete. You know, when, when they lost, uh, when Lance, you know, with the foul ball and with his antics, you know, and he said, you know, it's a great game, you know, and it, it's the same thing. I mean, it, it, it's so exciting that you can't sleep, that, that, that you want to try it again, you want to do it again. And that's how it was playing Pittsburgh, because they had to kill these, you know. They had a great, they had a great, they had a great camaraderie. You know, they had a great manager, you know, uh, and, and it was awesome going out there and playing with those, uh, playing against those guys. But he gave 
Yeah, absolutely. And I tell you, you know, it kind of carries you guys into the World Series. I got to ask you one question about the World Series. How good was Billy Hatcher in that series, man? It seemed like every time he got up, he, he got a hit. Phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal job. And I tell you, you know, you had a couple of hits yourself. And, you know, I tell you, you know, once that final out was clinched, it had to be a pretty special moment for you, huh? You know, yeah. bringing home that World Series title. Oh, man. Uh, the thing was, uh, I was, I was I'm not in that pile. I was late getting there because I knelt down on my knees and, you know, and then, you know, I said, Lord, if we win, I'll feel prayer before I start celebrating. And I did that. And um, by the time I got there, the photograph that you see, uh, I'm not nowhere in there, but you can see my finger. And um, Jack Armstrong coming out to greet me. And he's getting ready to come out of the pile. And that's the photograph that you see. Um, but uh, it, it, it's phenomenal. I mean, it, it, there's no way to it. I mean, you work so hard for this. Uh, I didn't know what it was back in 84 that you're playing for until about Christmas time my first year, I didn't look second in the for coming in, coming in third. All right, and it comes out, I get a check for coming in second, you know. But, um, but the real thing was pulling for all the models, being on top. And that's what we look at. And uh, look at all the greats that played the game and never, never, never got a chance to win one. You know, and that's how I look at it. Yeah, I'm just blessed, blessed to do that. Yeah, no question about it. Let's get John Pielli here with Herm Winningham. Now, you know, you ended up having a you know, good career in the majors, but, you know, you were done playing professionally by age 31. Yeah, really. So, you know, was that, was that your choice, or was that, you know, is, was that something you just ended up kind of just moving on? Charleston, South Carolina, 
the Liverdogs, who is now the Yankees, has it now. Um, and I did that for two years. Um, hitting base running outfield instructor. I'm not hitting, um, base running and outfield instructor. And did that a couple of years. And then I went to um, Milwaukee and stayed over there for a little while as uh, Huntsville hitting instructor and outfield and base running. And uh, after that, I applied for a lower job with Milwaukee and got that. Did that for a little while, and by that time, my son was getting to the point where dad needs to be home. And I came home, and I gave up the professional, professional coaching from that point. And so I had coaching at American Indian high schools, getting lessons and things like that. So, and, uh, and then while doing that, I worked 10 years also at UPS to have something to do. <laughs> you know, so. Yeah, man. So that's what I've been doing. Now, I tell you, man, it seems like you've done it all, man. It's been a hell of a ride. Listen, Herm, I want to thank you for having some time. Appreciate you giving thank me you. a couple minutes, and, you know, keep up the good work. Thank you. All right, John. You just take care of yourself, and God bless. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Herm Winningham, you know, very, very good outfielder, very good fourth outfielder for the majority of his career. Obviously came up with the Mets, was traded to the Expos in a Gary Carter trade and won a World Series championship with the Reds in 1990. Just got a couple minutes here. I'm going to touch on one of the articles that I wrote on JohnPLA.com, Bases Empty Blog, the whole thing. Uh, it had to do with the Reds and I was the Reds of a later team of the 1995, which is obviously five years after they won the World Series under Lou Pinella, went through a lot of uh, changes. But, you know, the talent that was on this team, I think I thought was as good, if not better, than the 1990 team. And obviously 1995 ends up happening, you know, abbreviated season because of the strike of 94, which ended that season. And, you know, 1995 was also the year that the Atlanta Braves won their only World Series after winning all those consecutive division titles and appearing in all those World Series. So the you know the Braves got what probably what they deserved. They got their World Series title, and you know the Reds were managed by Davey Johnson, and of course you know the former Met manager later on would manage in uh, L.A. and Baltimore, and of course with the Washington Nationals. And this was a team that had a lot of talent. I mean, you look at guys, you know, their whole lineup was set up. They had Benito Santiago catching, Ron Gant had come over to be their, their left fielder, Brett Boone, an up and comer. Reggie Sanders was kind of coming into his own. Deion Sanders was on that team before he was traded for Darren Lewis. And, you know, they, they, they had a very good bench, a very anchored bench with Eddie Tobinsey as the backup catcher. Lenny Harris, the greatest pinch hitter of all time, was, uh, was on that bench with Thomas Howard, Eric Anthony, Jerome Walton, who was a former rookie of the year in 1989. The one issue that they had was pitching. And, you know, they, had, they, they ended up having a couple injuries. Uh, you know, Smiley, John Smiley was there. Pete Shurik was there. They had to bring in guys like Mark Portugal and David Wells. And remember, the Nasty Boys were gone. You know, they were using Jeff Brantley as their closer. And, you know, this is a team that, honestly, I thought could compete with the Atlanta Braves. But the Braves pitching staff was probably a little too strong. And remember some regulars. You know, guys like Eric Davis and uh, Chris Sabo. Jose Rio was on that team before he got hurt in 95. The other guys would come back in 96, which I found pretty interesting. Ray Knight took over the season. Joe Oliver came back. Sabo and Davis, like I said. And that team never kind of got to the level that it wanted to. But, you know, the 1995 Reds, kind of quietly a team that you don't really think about because they ended up not going to the World Series. They lost to the NLCS. 
to the Braves that year after winning the uh, the AL, NL West division. But I'll tell you something that's very interesting to look at in regards to Major League Baseball history. But you know, I definitely want to thank Herm Winningham for being part of the program in the first hour. Hour two, great interview we got coming up with Mudcat Grant. And Mudcat Grant was a uh, you know, phenomenal pitcher. I'll get into that a little bit on the other side of the hour. So I'll be back with a little more stuff going on. Passball show back after this. 